0: joy it is to be here today, lovely time of fellowship around the meal, nice uh, blessed time in the Word this morning and I trust you're able to hold concentration for a few moments in our session this afternoon and it's notoriously the most difficult, it's easy for me, if you all fall asleep I can, it's hard for you to pay attention and uh, I have something to keep me occupied, you have your your thoughts and your concentration to, to try and attend to. It is a challenging uh, session, the after-lunch Sunday session, but uh, we have a, a lovely passage to consider uh, that will hold your attention, I am sure. Turn, please, to Romans chapter 8. Last time I started with our first session thinking about Paul's conflict and struggles mentioned through Romans 7 as an example there of an immature believer who was struggling to rest striving through the means of the law to find a measure of acceptance with god um, and finding the war in his members the battle between the old man and the inner man uh, just overwhelming and his conflict came to a crescendo in chapter 7 verse 24 where paul expresses "O wretched man that i am who shall deliver me from the body of this death and his answer leaps off the page for all of us that know Christ I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord we're going to have a look as we move from chapter 7 of Romans into chapter 8 and meditate upon some truths over the latter part of our conference we're going to pray now and ask for the Lord to work through his word and I hope you are there with me ready for what the Lord might have for us from these first parts of chapter 8 let's pray Father, we are grateful uh, for the truth of your word. We thank you for the opportunity and the privilege that we have to own the scriptures as our own personal copies of the word of God. Thank you for the ability you've given us to read and understand it, for the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for conferences like this where we gather and sit under the teaching and instruction and we allow the word to... To fill our minds and we, we set our, our thoughts and our desires and our hearts upon the truth of your word. We pray that we might be conformed more fully to the image of Christ. Uh, Lord, we pray that you might help us and, and guide us in the, the faith rest life, that we might rest in what you've done for us and that we might grow in our faith uh, rather, Lord, than striving in the flesh, but that we might find rest. Help us to abide in close communion and fellowship with you that we might bear much fruit help us lord knowing uh, we are delighted to know you as a god who who desires to give shelter and protection to us your people thank you for the invitation that you extend and i pray that we wouldn't spurn it in any way shape form we pray for your work to be done this afternoon through the word we pray that your name might be lifted up and that the saints might rejoice for the wonder of salvation once more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Personally, I've come back to Romans 8 time and time again. I've read Romans 8 when I am discouraged. I've read through Romans 8 when I'm depressed. I've read Romans 8 when I'm down and struggling with guilt, Uh, value, approval, acceptance, all the things that flood the flesh and the mind. Romans 8 is a powerful passage and truth that although it's not new in many ways, it's compiled so wonderfully for us that we find in our struggles with sin and in our struggles with trials, if we don't know how to pray, Romans 8 has so many answers for us. There is a noticeable shift when we move from chapter 7 to chapter 8. In chapter 7, the word I, the pronoun I suppose, I is mentioned over and over. The law is prominent and sin is dominant and influential. When we move into chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is frequent. 18 times the Spirit is mentioned. More than any other New Testament chapter indeed, God's grace and preserving love are prominent and clear and victory. uh, More than conquerors is a resounding truth that thrills the soul. There are many ways we might outline chapter 8, but here is one for your consideration. We'll begin with justification and sanctification, that Christ is at work in his own and by his indwelling spirit, he gives us life to overcome sin and guilt. We move to adoption in verses 14 through 17 and see that we're not just saved and delivered from sin, but we are welcomed into the family of God. And it would have been a miracle and a wonder to be forgiven and to be left to our own devices. But to be forgiven and embraced and provided for and nurtured and loved as a son or a daughter of God is a privilege beyond comprehension. We'll see that although we in creation itself groans longing for glory, glory is sure. Uh, the trials of life may turn our eyes from that truth but the word here is clear, God will bring us to glory. It is a, a picture of assurance as well. I'm glad that God didn't just save me and then abandon me to my own devices hoping that I make it to the end product. No, he saved me, he sanctifies me and he will glorify me like he will you. And Romans 8 reminds us of this and Though hardship and trial comes, nothing can separate God's people from His great love. Neither height, nor depth, you know, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. As we looked at last time in chapter 7, I mentioned that the inner, there is an inner conflict, a war within in the mind and life of believers and primarily i think paul is talking about new believers who are still struggling to comprehend the fullness of what christ has done that doesn't mean that mature saints can't struggle with the same problems occasionally too but there is a life that god wants us to enjoy where we are not on that merry-go-round of sin and discouragement and defeat and conflict but rather A place of rest because Christ has done the work and the Spirit leads us and bears fruit in our life our desire even immature believers their desire is for righteousness people who get saved very quickly have their desires for truth and desires for righteousness but the war continues to lead them sometimes even captive to the law of sin which bears destruction now Even though believers are freed from sin and from sin's power, certainly from sin's penalty, we recognise that we can and still do sin. And with that comes the temptation to hear the voice that would challenge us, the voice that rises up and says, if you were really saved, would you have done that? Have you ever had that voice? If you were really walking with the Lord, would you really struggle the way that you are? If you were really a child of God would he allow all of the things the likes of which Pastor Minnick was mentioning if you were really where God wants you to be would all of this be true true Christians faithful Christians wouldn't suffer like that and you and I now I'm saying it out loud and you're hearing me you go no I wouldn't believe that but we know at times we do we hear those voices and we listen Paul speaks practically to those kind of voices and that noise here when he says in the first four verses of chapter 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Would you continue reading with me for a moment we'll read down to the end of verse 4 and then I'd like to give you a bit of an overview thesis statement. Um, So verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. And you say Sunday afternoon, are we really going to look at that? Of course we are what I will say is this, God has graciously set his people, his children free from sin's penalty and power through Jesus Christ. The question that I have as I come to this text is where does justification begin and where does sanctification begin and where do they, can I really tease them apart and try and explain these two doctrines without Blurring them together, and here there are some interpretation challenges about: well, in verse one, is this about justification, or is this about progressive sanctification? Verse two, and we ask the same question through here, all through these four verses. And I um, came to mind yesterday as we were driving in for our evening service. Uh, We watched the sunset out to the west and the colors blending you see the colors the sun had dropped and it was just the oranges and the yellows and then the blues and you might ask the question where does the where does the red begin and where does it end and where does the blue begin and where does the blue end it all just blends seamlessly together in this hue and i remember watching some videos of people painting those kind of scenes and they'll start by doing a dollop of red paint and then they'll do a dollop of yellow paint and so on and then they'll blend them together And you look at the finished product and it's very hard to go back to where the red blob was and where the yellow blob was because it's become something that's all intermixed. And when we try and tease apart these verses, it's a little bit like trying to undo the painting and break it back into its elements which have been woven together in a way that commentators disagree as to where this ends and where this begins and how it all kind of flows. Um, Some will say that verses 1 and 3 pertain to justification whereas verses 2 and 4 pertain to sanctification. I actually lean in the direction, and this is just my um, current understanding, I'm still studying the scriptures, so I'll, you know, as the Lord leads and teaches, I might change, but I currently see that Paul here is speaking of justification in verses 1, 2 and 3, and even into verse 4, and then the end of verse 4, moving into sanctification. That's for those that are trying to kind of tease this apart a little bit, but it is a difficult interpretational challenge particularly there's some textual argument about whether the last phrase of verse one is there or shouldn't be and so on i'm going to assume that it should be and paul has it there for a reason but there are many questions about this and and what paul is trying to get at but the big picture the the beautiful painting is that god justifies and sanctifies he doesn't do one and he neglect the other one leads to naturally to the other and we'll have a think about that as we consider the wonder of being justified, that God has set us free from sin's penalty. Now let's look at verse one, glorious words. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Goes on to say, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. If you haven't memorized that verse, I would encourage you to do it. So when those voices of challenge all right the the opposition sows those seeds of doubt into your mind you can quickly run to the truth of the scripture and recognize that there's no condemnation to those of us that are in christ one of our challenges here is that this verse starts with there is therefore now no condemnation and when you read therefore you ask what it's there for and to what is paul linking these thoughts back to recognizing that chapter divisions can sometimes be a hindrance or a help and in this case perhaps they they kind of suggest a break that may not be that may add to our confusion some will say that paul is speaking this truth about no condemnation after the lament of verse 24 of the previous chapter where he says "Woe, sorry pardon me uh, O wretched man that i am who shall deliver me from this the body of this death Um, And he goes on here to speak about no condemnation. But to me, it's, and if that's the way you look at it, it leans heavily down the line of this being a sanctifying um, reference. But I think Paul is branching a little bit further back into Romans 5 here and considering an argument that he has been building and weaving throughout the text for a fair period of time because this word condemnation is only found twice in the New Testament. Two other places and those places are back in romans 5 verse 16 and verse 18. so if you go back there i think that when paul says there is therefore now no condemnation he's linking us back to what he declared in chapter 5. and here he's talking about the sin of one man that would be adam and the condemnation that we are under because of that verse 16 and not as if it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Verse 18, therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So when Paul here in chapter eight says, there is therefore now no condemnation, I think the therefore is pointing us back to the argument about justification by faith in Christ. In chapter seven, he mentions also that we are delivered from the law being dead, that we might walk in serving newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. And I think he's picking up the theme and the therefore goes back. There is therefore now no condemnation. The second word in this glorious statement is the word now. Now, and I'm grateful that I live in the day of the church, are you? I don't particularly like the sight or the smell of blood. I wouldn't have done well as an ancient Israelite. Um, I wouldn't have enjoyed going to the temple. Well, I probably would have, right, because it's an act of worship. But that's not a a comfortable thought, is it? To be required to bring sacrifice. I am grateful that Christ sacrificed himself once for all. Hebrews tells us that his sacrifice was the one to end all, the perfect and final sacrifice. And I'm grateful that now there's no condemnation to those of us that are in in Christ Jesus. We live in the age of the church, but it's more than that because now there's no condemnation for me personally because I've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as my saviour. So I can live in the church age, or someone may live in the church age, but still be under condemnation because Christ's sin, Christ's sin, Christ's sacrifice has not been appropriated to their life by faith. They are still under the condemnation that they deserve. But personally, I trust you have trusted Christ as the sin bearer, that he has covered and atoned for your sins, that you've received that by faith. It is a wonderful place to stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ even when you sin as a believer you are still free from condemnation because his blood covers your offense Uh, we don't enjoy it when we sin and i'm going to talk a little bit later on about should a believer feel guilty if there's no condemnation should we feel guilty and i'm going to spend a, a few moments later talking about the difference between condemnation and conviction because condemnation is bad and conviction is good all right But we stand free, not guilty criminals, no condemnation. No is emphatic, not any, not one, not one ounce of forensic condemnation. It's a legal term. It includes both the sentence and the execution of the sentence. And in Adam, that's before you were saved, we all stand before God guilty and condemned and requiring The righteous requirement, the demand for our sin is eternal punishment. The world waits on death row, waiting for their cell door to open and their number to be called and their life to end. We all, all mankind, all of sin come short of the glory of God and we all await that death penalty which we we deserve. And there's a character in the scripture that really captures this this notion, and that would be the man Barabbas, a notable Barabbas, all right? He was a man guilty of sedition, treason, uh, murder and insurrection. He was a man who deserved the death penalty, if ever there was a man who deserved the death penalty. And when Christ was being crucified, Barabbas was having his cell door thrown open. Remember, Pilate asked the crowd, trying to appease them. You know, their, 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 their practice was that there might be one set free, and he asked the question of the crowd, "Whom should I set free? Should I give you this Barabbas or Jesus?" And they they said, "Free to us, Barabbas!" And then, "What do I do with Jesus?" And the crowd cried vehemently, "Crucify him!" I don't know how Barabbas felt when the door opened to his cell. What do you think he was expecting? his execution but what did he receive his pardon no condemnation it's a wonderful picture and it conveys the heart and the emotion that I think we ought to meditate upon I want us to think about what does no condemnation mean in a judicial sense it means that we won't go to hell that we will have life forever with Christ because that, that the punishment for our sin has been dealt with by Christ But let's just that's that's the basic but let's think about what that means today you know what else no condemnation means it means no rejection a believer ought not be fearful of receiving rejection from god that god would spurn us god doesn't turn us aside he doesn't turn us out he doesn't kick us out of his family when we trust Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit dwells within as the earnest, the seal and the scriptures tell us plainly that he will never leave us. The Bible says that he will never forsake us. God will never cut us out of the family. There's no condemnation. There is no rejection. The story of the prodigal son lingers in my mind and it's just the picture of the love and grace of a father to go and meet his son to and that son was prepared to do anything so oh, you know I'll just I'll be one of my father's hired servants I'll be a slave in my father's house um, but the father conveys the mind of our Heavenly Father in this story and he welcomes and embraces and accepts back into the family his son that was lost God will always treat you as his child now that may not always be pleasant in the moment because there are days where my children are probably unhappy to be my child because they're under the hand of discipline and some days being a child of the most high is a difficult and hard day for us but it always bears about good results earthly fathers can overstep their hand or they can over apply the rod they can even foolishly drive the heart of their children from them with their heaviness but our heavenly father never does there's never anger that's the next thing so there's no rejection no condemnation means no penalty no rejection and it means no anger god's wrath is turned aside from those of us that are in christ that doesn't mean he won't discipline us when we need it but it is always in love. He sees us as a father sees a young child trying to do what they can do. He sees the reality. He sees us, he knows, and the, the scriptures tell us that he remembers our frame, he knows that we're just but dust. He sees our weakness, and the picture here is one of a tender loving father watching these—you know the toddler take their, their first steps, or, you know, the, starting to run or jump at falling and failing and, and father encouraging though the child falls and stumbles and falters you know, that father doesn't discipline his child for those those errors right? the father knows and our heavenly father knows our motives our desires the the conflict with the inner man our desire to do that which is right and he says here that there is now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So, should we feel guilty when we sin? If the Father's not angry with us, if there's no no judicial consequences for sin, in that hell is not the abode for those who are who are saved, where we are sealed and sure of heaven, should we feel guilty when we sin? Uh, well there's no condemnation but there is conviction and conviction ought to produce in us a godly sorrow that leads to repentance so it is right for us when we sin to feel guilt in fact the holy spirit presses upon our hearts that conscience the conviction and the guilt but there's no condemnation there's no passing of sentence and to declare to be wrong or evil there is no condemnation for those of us that are in christ but conviction is something different the bible says those that believe on christ this is john 3 18 he that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of god there is no condemnation for believers only for those that have not believed on the lord but conviction that's another that's another matter conviction is nathan the prophet telling david the story about a a man who stole another man's beloved only lamb and David growing angry about the actions the the audacity of this man to steal this this other man's only lamb and Nathan the prophet saying thou art the man that's conviction isn't it and David realizes and that's a blessing and God works in that way and he convicts us over our sin conviction is Jesus asking Peter three times lovest thou me after Peter denied Christ three times in the courtyard there the night of the um, the arrest and the trials. And that love is seen in Jesus saying, feed my sheep over and over, and reappointing and encouraging him in the ministry. It's Jesus' reassurance, the conviction and the reassurance. Condemnation brings sentence. You're guilty, you're damned, it is an ocean of regret, endless waves that just wash failure and disappointment in our lives. And there ought to be none of that, no condemnation in the hearts of God's people. But conviction brings repentance. Turn, please, if you can, to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 for a moment. Paul wrote with this kind of language to the church at Corinth, to believers that were wrestling with uh, obeying... <laughs> They're a worldly bunch and Paul addresses particular sins and he wrote scathing letters and there's there's a lot of tension there in what Paul had to say and in chapter 7 verse 9 he says this, now I rejoice not that you were made sorry but that you sorrowed to repentance for you were made sorry after a godly manner. Now he's writing to believers about a particular sin issue that they didn't want to hear what he had to say and he made them he hurt them in the way he addressed them but he's saying i'm not not sorry for this for you are made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation now i don't believe that that reference to salvation is talking about salvation from sin in a sense of justification like we're talking about here but rather deliverance from the bondage of sin that they were in the particular sin It would be better to understand this with the word deliverance because salvation also means deliverance. So for godly sorrow worketh repentance to deliverance not to be repented of. These people had changed their mind about sin and they had repented. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Um, The consequence of rejecting these and ignoring the the challenge would be that the, the, the body and the life would work towards death. Uh, verse 10 here of 2nd Corinthians 7 I don't believe is a salvation from sin issue but a response to the conviction and the instruction of the apostle and their obedience to that and then their deliverance in the the realm of this particular sin because in verse 11 he goes on to say for behold this self same thing that she sorrowed after a godly sort what carefulness it wrought in you Yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge and all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So, Paul's talking to believers and he's saying that your your response to the conviction and the instruction was to repent and sorrow that leads to repentance and it was evidenced by their reaction to this sinful issue in the future. So, conviction is a good thing, condemnation is not... Conviction helps us walk in righteousness and it ought to bear guilt upon our hearts in a sense that it might show us that we're wrong and that change needs to be made. But conviction leads to life and deliverance. That's a good thing. Condemnation bears the soul down under the weight of guilt, rejection. I I have been caught in dark of... How do I say this? I have found myself caught in places where those voices weigh heavily upon my heart, where the voice of condemnation just presses upon my mind in ways that ought not be. It's not healthy. It's not the Lord. It's not the conviction of the spirit. It's not the, it's the devil at work, isn't it? It really is. It's the enemy of God seeking to afflict those who are trying to walk in righteousness with voices that ought to that lead us to despair and discouragement and those voices weigh up and they continue and they continue but these verses here set us free from that this word these words here have given me such comfort where i've felt that feeling of failure rejection sin discouragement defeat striving failing falling and the merry-go-round continues on And then these verses here just bless my soul because there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. I see and I imagine the battle, the fiery dance of the wicked, all right, being cast across the battlefield. And these verses turn my thoughts and mind to Christ on the cross and his love for me and his, his death in my place that I, like Barabbas, may have my cell door thrown open and I may go free. Then my, my thoughts and my imagination runs from the cross to the grave, then to the empty tomb, to then the ascension. And then one day the throne in glory, the lamb seated upon his throne. And I think about the plan that God has in place for us to lift us from the place of condemnation and defeat, sin, discouragement and deserved penalty. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And you just let those thoughts linger and and flow in your mind and the Lord ministers to your heart, reminding me that there is no condemnation from God. Self-condemnation, that's probably another issue. Condemnation from others, yes, but God doesn't. This isn't a promise for everyone, is it? It's restricted. Who is the promise for for those of us that are in christ jesus those of us that have trusted and the scriptures back in chapter five and six of romans define for us two categories of people there are those who are in adam and there are those that are in christ and i tell you which one i hope you're in if you're in christ there is no condemnation for you if you are still in in adam you are lost in trespasses and sin and there is condemnation because you have not believed Upon the Lord Jesus Christ you say hold on well doesn't it further kind of give us another option here and this is where it starts to grow a little bit difficult in our interpretation doesn't it say that there are believers that are in Christ who walk after the Spirit and then there must be believers who in Christ who don't walk after the Spirit and surely the no condemnation is only for those who are walking not after the flesh but after the Spirit And I would argue that's a confusing kind of way to look at this. The truth of the matter is the no condemnation is for all believers. And the fruit of that is that we walk after the spirit and not after the flesh, rather than a condition for the no condemnation. Because if we have to walk after the spirit and not after the flesh to be free from condemnation, who are you trusting for your salvation? Is it Christ and His finished work and the fact that you are in Christ by faith? Or is it His finished work plus your faithful obedience to His Word and then you start getting into a terrible place of works-based salvation, which is not Scripture. So we need to be careful here. I think the walking after the flesh, uh, walking not after the flesh but after the Spirit is the way of those who've trusted in Christ and the question I have for you is, is this right now, is have you trusted in Christ? You go to church, that's good. You're on a Sunday afternoon after lunch. So, so, most unbelievers would have gone home by now, right? They would have had dessert. I hope not. You're probably thinking, who are the people who left after dessert? <laughs> no, I don't know. But I, I presume I'm talking to a crowd of believers. We're, we're at a conference, we're, we're at church on Sunday, and it's an afternoon service and if you're here you probably would call you you'd profess to be saved but maybe not um, I I would argue that there would be one two maybe more in this room that may not be saved you say really I would say the same thing about the church up at Springwood that I preach to every week the same crowd the same faces And I would say with confidence that not all the people that go there on a Sunday afternoon after fellowship lunch are saved. In fact, I can think of a couple who would say openly that they're not saved. What about you? Are you in Christ? You know, the verse that the Lord used to convict my heart about my need for Christ as a 21-year-old, that's the age I was when I got saved, was the verse that I read earlier from John 3, verse 18. Because the idea of condemnation It didn't scare me until I realized the basis for condemnation wasn't about how good or how righteous or how morally upright I am. I'm condemned if I reject Christ and that got me in a way that I couldn't escape. Have you trusted Christ? If you're in Him, you're safe from the judgment to come but if you're not, you're trusting in your own ability. What was the way of salvation for Noah and his sons, Noah and his wife, his sons, their wives? was The ark. That was the way. Those outside the ark perished under the condemnation of God. Those inside the ark were delivered by God's provision and his way of salvation. And that for us pictures what Christ is for the world today. He is the ark of salvation. He is the only way. There's no other means of rescue or deliverance through the judgment that comes. There was not one person who could swim for long enough to endure the flood. No one will stand in the day of judgment to come. Only those who've trusted in Christ will be free from condemnation. So let's move on to verse 2. We've talked in some detail about verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Then he says in verse two for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Now I think he's still thinking about and unpacking for us this concept of justification that we live by the spirit. And we've been made free from the principles of sin and death and its bondage because Christ came, died, and he ministers life to those that believe. But as we move into chapter 3, uh, sorry, verse 3, we'll see that Jesus came to do what the law could not do. God did what the law could not do. Now, is the law sin? No. The law is good, the law is true. It is righteous and it serves its function. But what the law cannot do is save. It cannot deliver. Earlier in Romans, Paul declares that the law works wrath. Also in chapter 5 verse 20, it says that when the law entered, the offense abounded. It's almost like you put up a sign that says don't. We use the... don't spit what do you see nearly everyone do they didn't want to spit to start off with but now they see the sign that says don't spit what are they gonna do they're gonna spit hey I probably do it it's the heart of the rebel that's in me and probably in you when something says don't what do we immediately go I want to do the thing that I am told not to do and the law does that the offense abounds the law exposes and declares what is righteous and true and God's standard and and it's, it 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 provokes um we'll say this we'll stay in these two the law works wrath for where there's no law there's no transgression it highlights and exposes sin offences abound but the problem's not with the law the law is wholly righteous and good the problem's our flesh the problem is the law does not contain within it power to keep it it says here in verse 3 for what the law could not do that is to save us in that it was weak through the flesh the flesh is the problem with the law it's our inability to do what is right and it is our bent towards evil that we have in Adam that leads us to to uh, to break the law and everyone has The problem's not the law, the problem's with us, it's with the flesh and apart from God's intervention, what would the law do for you? The law would condemn you, it would prove you guilty and show that you are a just deserver of the punishment which God has uh, aside and ready for those that reject His Son. Verse three, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Thankfully, God intervened. Otherwise, if we were just trying to be righteous and keep the law and please God, we would all be desperately, uh, we would be desperate and hopeless and on our way to hell. But God intervened. God sent an angel? No. God sent His Son, His own Son, into this world. God commendeth his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When Jesus came, the Bible here says, that He took upon himself the likeness of sinful flesh. We've got to be careful with that, because we can stray into some error without even realising it. There are those that say that Jesus sinned. No, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Then there are others that say that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh. He just appeared to come in the flesh you see how we can end up in a couple of errors here no the likeness here is the the likeness the resemblance Jesus came literally in the flesh and he came in our likeness in the likeness of sinful flesh let me say it this way I'll ask you some questions and you can see what I'm trying to make sure we stray from did Jesus sin no he was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never sinned. Did he really come in the flesh? Yes, because he needed to come in order to die. If he was just an appearance and he didn't actually come, then what? That's not a sacrifice for the sin of the world. So the likenesses of the the sinful part, he literally came in the flesh and he died as a sinless sacrifice in our place. And throughout history, churches struggled with these things and we need to make sure we keep them straight. Jesus did not merely appear to be a man. He was a man in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. And the, this verse goes on to say, and for sin, we might say uh, to deal with the sin problem. Verse three, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for the sin problem, condemned, condemned sin, in the flesh how and why we know that his perfect sacrifice is the means to this to deal with sin and to condemn sin in the flesh verse 4 then we read this that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us now some commentators and scholars will go one way here and some will go another way i'll give you both options and you can make up your mind Um, some will say that because christ came and because he died and because we've been saved by faith and indwelt by the spirit of god that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us in that we now are enabled to obey and walk in obedience to the law before you got saved could you keep the law no now some will say that now that christ came he's enabled us by his indwelling spirit to keep the law that righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, I would argue, and maybe that's just my experience and my failings that just come to the surface, that even as a saved person with the indwelling Holy Spirit, I still can't keep the the perfect righteousness of the law, can you? If we're guilty of one point, we're guilty of all. So some people go in that direction, others would say that Christ and Christ alone completely fulfilled the law by his perfect obedience and sacrificial death so that's what I think that's about that it's his sacrifice and his life and his his work the righteousness was fulfilled in him and therefore us in him who walk not after the spirit but after the flesh now this last verse the last part of chapter sorry the last portion of the fourth verse Moves away from this notion and idea of justification and moves us over into the, the process of sanctification, which we will see from verse 5 and following. Justification is the necessary foundation. It's the, the truth and it is therefore the, the foundation from which flows the fruit. Justification frees us from sin's penalty, whereas sanctification frees us from sin's power. God has forgiven us through Christ and imparted new life to us through the Spirit we are sheltered in the Sun we are resting in the finished work of Christ and from this place of rest and comfort and assurance and peace from the safety and security that we enjoy where there is no condemnation waiting us around the corner though our own conscience Might uh, overact sometimes and we might feel ourselves beset by condemning thoughts. The truth is, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ, and that's a a safe, sheltered place to be. But the necessary and intended fruit from this salvation is mentioned in Ephesians 2 8 and 9, and down to verse 10. Verse 8 tells us, For by grace he is saved through faith not of yourselves it's the gift of god not of works lest any man should boast boast verse 10 says for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus under good works which god hath before ordained that we should walk in them and we'll pick up that thought next time as we think about walking in the spirit and and resting in christ but walking and functioning in the spirit that we might bear the fruit that honors him i'm going to leave you with two questions Are you in Christ through faith in his blood because he died to pay, to shed his blood for the remission of our sin? If so, you can enjoy the assurance that there's now no condemnation for you because you're in Christ Jesus. The second question is this, as a believer, are you walking according to the spirit or are you walking according to the flesh? Each day we must yield to the spirit, rely on his power that his fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, temperance meekness self-control all of these might be born in our lives are we growing are we bearing fruit christ died and gave his spirit to set us free from the law of sin and death no condemnation for the believer in christ means that we are sheltered in the Son. let's pray father we want to thank you again for the time we've had today to be in fellowship with believers and to be assembled here and, and hear your word taught we pray that the truth of your word might linger in our hearts, that we might meditate upon these things and that we might carry them with us. And Lord, we pray that we might move from the Romans 7 experience where the eye and the, the law and the flesh are so dominant over to what we read of in chapter 8, where we see the, the freedom from condemnation and the Spirit of God moving and working in our lives. That we might bear precious fruit to your name and for your glory thank you for the time we've had we pray that you would help us depart from this place uh, with that reverence and delight reverence in our hearts and delight in our hearts we thank you for all that you are we pray in jesus name amen thank you